0: brought to you by prep matters and the self-driven child the myth of the conveyor belt is is a strong and provocative one yeah. uh, this idea that there is this one guaranteed secure path that you can put your kid on and with just enough you know browbeating you can keep them on that path and then there is some sort of guaranteed future uh, of security for your progeny like that's that's a myth we all want to believe in How important are standardized tests?
1: Why isn't my child doing well in school?
0: Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard?
1: Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. So Blake Bowles, so lovely to have you join us with your book. Um, Why are you still sending your kids to school?
0: My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this a long time coming. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love your book. Uh, I really look forward to digging into this. Um, it, you know, and and the, the book, I, I will admit to being uh, a bit more of a conformist in some ways than than I think your path has been. But one of the things that it was so it was so wonderful both for people who are thinking about really stepping out of what normal school is and, and, and you really you really address all of the fears and concerns that kind of any parent should rightfully have when, you know, stepping out of the herd kind of feels a little scary, right? And I think you do such a great job of addressing those and making people feel not only safe, but in emboldened in, in and excited for the possibility of helping their kids find the right path for themselves. And for those of us who choose, or those parents who choose to have their kids stay in, in quote unquote, more mainstream schools, I think it's the, the book is a wonderful read to give us a sense of ways that we can make the most out of, and more, again, I keep saying, we to help our kids get the most out of their own schooling, regardless of what path we take. And So so uh, I came to this a little bit skeptical. I came away decidedly less, so I'm really excited for it. So let me back up and just start with an easy question. So so why, why this book? Why the book now?
0: Well, for a long time, I wrote books for young people directly as my audience. And I eventually realized that it was parents who were picking up these books, reading them first, and then handing them to their teenager, or college age kids. And so one answer to that question is, I have finally accepted my audience, which is parents and mostly moms. Really, mm-hmm. um, but why now? Uh, this book was certainly not written uh, with any awareness of the incoming pandemic, and my editor told me I actually win the award for the worst time to book title ever because no one is sending their kids to school when the book came out in May 2020. So it was just kind of a, a weird timing thing.
1: Well, and it's, it's funny for me, and I, I would I could almost argue the other the other way because you know if you're a fan of Clayton Christensen and of innovators. Disruptions, right? I mean, school has been so scrambled um, in perhaps even more in ways than than they've always been. Um, but I think it has also given a lot of parents a really front row view of how hard school is and how dispiriting. And, and to your point, you know how how useless so much of so many of the tasks that we task kids with. That if, if this isn't an opportunity for parents to reconsider. Or help, help, to support the kids reconsidering their own education. I mean, I, you know, there have to, there has to be some silver lining coming out of this pandemic, right?
0: I, I agree. And I think a silver lining might be that parents are now getting more of a view into what is actually happening in the average school day, even though it's not the average school day, but the content of the curriculum, the assignments, um, seeing what actually goes on, um, so to speak, in classes. And that might inspire more parents to say, well, let's try something a bit different in the fall, especially if the fall is still going to be virtual school uh, or part-time hybrid virtual school. but. Also, a lot of people in the media were saying, well, we're all homeschooling now. And I just wanted to scream out loud, no, no one's homeschooling now. Not even homeschoolers are homeschooling now because this is just a weird situation uh, where no one can go out and do stuff. Homeschoolers can't go hang out at the park or go to museums or field trips or go do an internship. And so it's really just the worst of all possible worlds. And if we associate that with homeschooling, that could be actually quite bad for the, the branding, the reputation of home education and other alternatives.
1: Oh, what a really good point. I had a, I had a, a friend who's a teacher was saying that this isn't What we're doing is not distance based learning it's emergency distance based learning. It's been we've all been thrown in the lifeboat and say, figure it out. folks."
0: Yeah, it just stinks for everyone. Parents, teachers, young people. It's it's weird. And let's not associate it with, you know, an alternate, a genuine alternative to conventional school, which is what I try to write about in the book.
1: So let me let me ask you to just to, to clarify for folks that. What home, what traditional homeschooling looks like, and what unschooling is. Less people conflate those two.
0: Sure, homeschooling, and this is the stereotype that I grew up with, growing up in California public schools, is just you rearrange the word school at home. It's mimicking the traditional school curriculum uh, with mom or dad trying to be the teacher. No one actually wants that, or at least not for very long, without the benefit of a bunch of other kids around you to, to suffer in parallel with you. So it's just miserable. Why would anyone want to homeschool, right? And the answer that most people think is so that you know, these parents can be highly controlling and shelter their kids or indoctrinate them with certain worldviews. And every once in a while that happens. But the research that I did for this book revealed that homeschoolers are just a huge and very diverse crowd of people, diverse, uh, both in terms of demographics and also diverse in terms of motivations for homeschooling. And it's been changing rapidly over the past just 15 years uh, the number one reason used to be uh, religious and moral instruction to choose to homeschool. And now it's not. It's these other reasons that are just like, I'm unhappy with my kid's classroom experience. And so it's an increasingly secular, increasingly diverse group of people, and the old stereotypes no longer apply.
1: Well, and, and one thing you, you, I, you know in the book you said that, that traditionally homeschooling is, is sort of more isolation, sheltering, and unschooling is more freedom and exploration. And it it can be uncomfortable, I think, for us as parents to give our kids more autonomy in the process. And so we feel it's probably harder for us, but better for our kids. So can you kind of talk about why it is worth our having that level of discomfort. What are the huge benefits to our kids that make, it's worth, make it worth it for us as parents to be a little bit uncomfortable?
0: That is a great question. Um, I think it's worth it in a very long-term sense because uh, it promotes a very healthy one-on-one re- you know, parent-child relationship. It makes mm-hmm. it more about um, you know, mutual autonomy support, mutual respect. No one is trying to coerce anyone else into doing anything and there's not these endless protracted battles over homework over your grades aren't good enough all this stuff where these mechanisms of school get in the way of just a parent enjoying their kid and a kid enjoying their parent like school is a number one stressor for families and so if you can find a way to discard those stressors while still you know feeling like your kid is being prepared for you know entering the world of adulthood then why not do it like, if you see your kid's mental health improving, why not do it?
1: Well, and it's a, I mean, it's a great point I mean, obviously it, for anyone who's who's been you know fallen this for for years or decades, when, you know the incidence of anxiety and depression is just i mean borderline to oh I don't know a pandemic right uh, and and so ruinous, to so many you know this, so the the, the healthy launch for so many kids in SurePoint, the relationship with so many so many folks. But but you also said something, you know, that, that we're trying to prepare our kids for a real life, and I, and I've had people say. Well, I know that he's really stressed, but you know, and, and he doesn't like having people tell him what to do all the time. But that's you know, that's real life. You've got it, you know. You, you know, I guess presumably you have to prepare now as a fourteen year old to suffer in the same ways for the rest of your life. Is that
0: <laughs> I I think that's a it's a valid concern and it's one I dedicated an entire chapter to, which is, you know, This is the question, how do kids learn how to work hard if we don't force them to do hard work that they kind of don't like right now? It's a really important question. And On one hand, I think um, it it may be the wrong question to ask because it's not about reproducing uh, the the life that you have lived or that people before you have lived for your kid. We're trying to make each generation a little bit better. It also may not be the right question to ask because what kind of world are we preparing our kids for? Is it the world of kind of extrinsically motivated, repetitious factory labor or is it the world of... Jobs where you're like doing creative stuff like Daniel Pink wrote about in Drive, you know, where intrinsic motivation is a a foundational ingredient and therefore... You should give your kid the chance to be intrinsically motivated now instead of just pushing and pulling them around with carrots and sticks, you know.
1: Oh. Right. And, and it, I mean, I'd love to have you dig in a little bit more to talk about in, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Because if we go back to that idea that for parents, it's hard to, um, it's stressful for us to feel less Control because we don't know, you know, what direction our kids are going to wander off to explore this, that, and then maybe it'll end up someplace that's, that's bad. And so we so often use, and I I love that, you know, we, we talk about um, helicopter parenting. Yours is the first book where I, where I read about intensive parenting, which I think is such, such a more accurate description. Because, you know, I think not all parents think that they're hovering and anxious and all the time, but, but I'm really trying to, um, with real intention, right? Impart upon, impart to my kids, the right? Learning the right opportunities in ways that will really inform you know, who they are as people and guide them in the right directions to get them to certain outcomes. And on the surface of that, that sounds like an okay thing in theory, right? But. I suspect that it, in, to, you're invoking Dan Tank, you know, whose stuff is great, that that pushing people to get to a certain place with carrots and sticks of, of extrinsic motivation is developing brains in very different ways than opportunities that foster intrinsic motivation.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, there's a lot. There's so much we can dig into here, Ned. So on the parenting front, uh, disclaimer, I'm not a parent. I'm interested in that prospect, but I don't have that foundational experience. But I did dig into this literature around the history of parenting and the the modern state of parenting, which, as you mentioned, is called intensive parenting by sociologists. And it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see how drastically things have changed over the past half century. And it was fascinating to see that even just over the past 10 to 20 years, how this has really ramped up. And this is what allows us to talk about things like helicopter parenting or tiger moms. But really, Intensive parenting is this approach to parenting, which is all-consuming, completely child-centered. Um, it's kind of an erasure of parents' own identities or a, a subsuming of parents' identities into their kids' identities. And uh, this has just become normal, and it came it came around for a number of reasons. Like uh, stagnating wages since the 70s led to this general increase in economic anxiety. This might be the first generation where kids don't have a good chance of becoming more wealthy than their parents. That's a big reason. All of the child abduction cases, which were splashed on the media in the 80s and 90s, uh, so there are big kind of historical forces at play here, and this makes it very difficult to escape the intensive parenting culture. And this is why I said I have to include a chapter about parenting in this book, because when we're talking about taking an alternative to the conventional school system, you are also talking about opting out of the dominant parenting culture. And that is an extremely difficult thing to do. The the pressure of other parents and their expectations and judgments. Again, I have not personally experienced this yet, but I have read enough to know and I've talked to enough parents of teenagers I've worked with to know that, man, That is a powerful force. And so I've had a number of people tell me, hey, I really enjoyed the chapter on parenting in your book. And it seems like the hardest part to sell to parents, that they can somehow escape this intensive, overwhelming parenting culture. And I say, yeah, yeah, I agree. (laughs) I'm not sure where to go with that. (laughs) Yeah, oh, I I
1: love that point of of you know of of what parents are giving up when they step outside of the culture. Bill and I with our book were presenting in a a very sophisticated, very frankly posh um independent school in Texas and what in one of its city, And um the school by design was not supportive of kids who for whom learning wasn't easy. And so if kids struggled, you know, with, with emotional problems or with ADHD or a recently diagnosed learning disability, instead of being supported, they were kind of counseled out the door. And what this created was this unbelievable pressure on families to support to the nth degree their children to keep them there because that was the most important thing. And I think not so much for the kids education to develop as development as a person, but for the parents to stay within the country club of that school. And you know, or you make, make the point early on in your book that, that we co- convince ourselves that we're doing what's in the best interest of children. But it's hard to know whether we're doing that if what we say are in the best interest of children so closely align with the best interests of schools or in this case of adults. So, I mean, do you, when you talk with families who, are, who, you, who you see, you, you worry that that's kind of where they are, how do you help them separate their own anxiety, what they will lose, and set that aside and really see this as, as this isn't about them, it's about their kids and their own lives?
0: Man, uh, I'm going to attack this from a certain angle, which is the research on homeschooling and and these radical alternative schools, which I like to champion. Um, There's some incorrect memes out there about how homeschooling will make your kids smarter or help them get better test scores. That's all total BS because it's poor social science, uh, largely run by this organization called the HSLDA. And it's really unfair to compare homeschoolers who have um, usually more family resources Um, to an average set of public school students who would have less less resources and say, look, they have more higher SAT scores. Well, SAT scores are directly correlated with parental income, right? As Alfie Cohn said... (laughs) A standardized test predicts uh, one thing very perfectly, which is the zip code of where the the kid lives. So what I discovered by doing this deep dive research into um, the actual high quality research surrounding homeschooling and other alternative forms of, of school is that it actually doesn't seem to make any difference in a positive or negative way to take an alternative path. When we're talking about college acceptance rates, about test scores, to the extent that, that yeah, there's not much great research on that, um, and long-term outcomes in, in terms of people being able to get jobs, the, the basic stuff that parents are concerned with, like economic secured security, security right? just to give it a single phrase. And so... Um, this is kind of a a double-edged sword here, because on one side, uh, and this is the side I like to to talk about, you can can let your kid take an alternative path in which they are more happy, they have better mental health on a day-to-day basis, and they're probably going to turn out just as well as if they had gone to their normal local public school. I think that's a reassuring message, and it's a fair one also. But the other side of that sword is saying, wow, uh, is this is all the stuff that we call schooling uh, really just a proxy for, for something else? Is really, is much important stuff actually happening in schools? Or as, like you said, is it more like, um, you know, helping your kids stay in the, the little country club? and And by that, we mean like, kind of helping kids stay within the, the social class into which they were born. And that's something I, I talk about in uh, the chapter about higher education. Also, uh, how much actual measurable, measurable learning is going on in schools and how much of it is just this elaborate game of signaling, of, sh- you know, showing off that you have the right personality traits, the right characteristics, so that the gatekeeper will let you in to the next stage of, of conventional success. Yeah, know, it's such
1: a good point. We're chatting ch- ch- with uh, Jeff Salingo and his new book, uh, and then Paul Paul Tuff as well about um, the years that matter most, and, and, and both of which echo that point that the dominant benefit, dominant measurable benefit of particularly elite colleges, it's just signaling. Right. it's just signaling um, but I like your point you know uh, when you do chapter about um, higher education that and to the point you made there that folks can go through a conventional path go a very un- un- unconventional path and end up at the same place, when you made the point that, that even elite colleges don't require a high school diploma, I really scratched my head. And so I quickly Googled because I'm a skeptic, right? You know, do you need a high school? You know, and the first five, eight things on Google all came up and said, well, yeah, you need a high school degree or or a GED. And I thought, well, wait a second. Well, I know Blake does his research. So then I pulled up, the, you know, the first place that occurred to me is a, you know, vaguely, um, you know, selective um, universe. And I said, let's try Harvard, right? And Harvard, I've quoted this. A high school diploma is not required to fly to Harvard College. There is no single academic path we expect all students to follow, but the strongest applicants take, applicants take the most rigorous secondary school curricula available to them that's awesome, right? Because, you know, you, you, in, in the Starkey book, you talked about all these kids for whom school just hasn't worked, right? And that boy, Tom, who was so, so far ahead of his peers, and he just wasn't challenged in ways that were meaningful. So he could stay in, in he could have stayed in conventional school, and if, he, if he'd been successful, get perfect grades and blah, blah, blah. But... He wouldn't arguably have taken the most rigorous school curricula available to him. He was going to find that outside of his local school. I think it's such a, I mean, for all the parents you talk about who want to to, um, get as many degrees as possible, to know that you can still do that. You can do it and you can do it in a way that isn't so dead into the soul. It's pretty, it's
0: pretty cool. Yeah. I think it's really cool too. And I think that for me, there was this personal reason for getting into this field of self-directed education because I was a high performer in school, mostly California public schools. And at the same time, I didn't have the words for it back then, but at the same time, I was often bored. I was often frustrated. I was uh, resentful towards the the school bureaucracy and forced group work and the the, the snail's pace of the curriculum. And so kind of like that kid, Tom, who I talked about in the book, you know, I wanted to go deep into stuff. And I had some time to do that after school, after my homework was done, but I had other interests too. I wanted to be out rollerblading around the streets of Bakersfield. And, And so if I had had more free time during the day, and I didn't even, I don't even think full on unschooling would have been a good fit for me when I was younger. But I could certainly have imagined doing some part-time, more condensed, more intensive academics. For example, like a lot of unschoolers who I do know, signing up for some community college classes starting at age 16, and then have a lot of free time to dive into my interests to go as deep as I want to go. I was super interested in reading books about science and physics, and again, I had some free time to do that. But sometimes I wonder, like, man, what could I have done during those teenage years if I didn't spend so much of it sitting? Kind kind of bored and unengaged in my traditional classrooms.
1: Um, You talk quite persuasively and quite passionately about video games. And, you know, Jay McGonigal's great work on that. Uh, And I would love for you to talk. So there are two questions. One, um, (laughs) if you had done a little bit more unschooling and, and, and and had things that were more... Truly engaging of your intellectual developing intellectual capabilities as, as, as a high school kid do you think you might have done less video game that's 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 sort of the, you know the, the old last kids but also um you know for every time Bill and I give a talk about our book um, there's always such alarm about video games and it's the wasted youth and on and on and on and on and for people who have not read yet read your book you make as compelling an argument about the benefits of video games in half a chapter, you know, is, is from my perspective, as McGonigal does in, in her great work. So, 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 when do you think it would have made a difference? And two, you know, help us, help us for parents who are like, I, I can't stand watching my kid play video games. Help them understand why there are all these benefits that they just don't yet understand.
0: Okay. First things first, I loved video games and computer games and arcade games and tabletop role playing games and magic, the gathering. I loved all those dearly pretty much from age 11 to 19. And you
1: made them sound so compelling. I felt like I'm the biggest twerp in the world that I didn't do enough of that as a kid. You really missed out. <laughs> I really did. Oh,
0: man. But, but we, we have a few years between us, and I think that the the quality of games really uh, did change. And so if you are in your 40s right now, when you think of video games, you probably think of the games of your youth, which are like, you know, Super Mario Brothers, you know, the very first one on Nintendo Entertainment right. System. And that's a game that you would play in your basement, by yourself, maybe with a sibling. And so it was a fairly isolated game. It was fun, but not particularly challenging. And and so it's very easy for parents to lump games in general, video games in general, with essentially Candy Crush, something that feels Mm -hmm. like an addictive game that some very clever designer has created to try to extract money and, and, and attention out of your kid. But the games that I loved most as a kid, were really complex games, complex role-playing games, complex strategy games. And when I look at the games that kids are playing today, the most popular ones are Minecraft and Fortnite and variations of The Sims. And these games that require serious, like difficult, critical thinking skills and team building skills and the ability to like break down a complex problem. My God, they're difficult. Like just spend 20 minutes trying to play your kid's favorite game, assuming the kid's favorite game is not Candy Crush or Farmville or whatever.
1: Well, Blake, those sound like skills people might use as like, I don't know, fully functioning adults.
0: Uh, I'm getting there, Ned. You're barking up the right tree. Yeah, so here's the argument that I make in my book. And as you said, it leans a lot on Jane McGonigal's wonderful book, Reality is Broken, uh, which is that a game in McGonigal's definition is anything that has clear goals a uh, clear feedback system to tell you how you are uh, you know, doing at achieving those goals, clear rules. And then finally, and most importantly, it's a voluntarily undertaken activity. And so the game of golf would no longer be a game if you took out the feedback, for example, you didn't know where your ball went. Oh no, it's not a good game anymore. Or if you made golf mandatory, it was just something every child had to do. You'd end up with a lot of golf haters, right? And so The games that kids are really into nowadays fulfill these characteristics. And most importantly, and this is something that I picked up in a big way from your book, uh, is that modern games give kids a sense of control. And it is the one place, it's often the only place where kids who are hampered with schoolwork can go to feel like they are in control of their own lives, where they can go and be effective actors. They have autonomy, they have agency. And when you go... and you go play Fortnite with your friends, you get online and you play Sims, like you are practicing the skills of adulthood because in the rest of your life, you are pretty much not allowed to do that. And so for me, I took away uh, not only these kind of like critical thinking and teamwork type skills, but I, I felt like I was in control of my life, at least for a little while. And so this is something, as you mentioned, you know, this extrapolates onto the world of work, and also something I argue in the book is that adolescents today, because adolescents are mostly who I work with, um, you know, they don't have any real function in society. They are not given any meaningful work to do. And historically, just a hundred years ago and for the rest of history before that, they were relevant. They had roles to play. They had important contributions to make. And so I think if we're going to take the long view here, I think that adolescents are people who are ready to contribute to adult society and they're looking for opportunities to do that. And we see it whenever a kid gets matched with a really great internship or they decide to like start a little freelance business or they're able to help out the elderly in their neighborhood or their own grandparents. You know, you see this this human dignity of like having a real function and a real purpose. And that's what kids don't have nowadays, because we just have this schoolwork that we've made up for them, which most everyone, you know, we just sort of turn a blind eye and we think, yeah, this is real work. It's not real work. Like maybe for kids who are super academically oriented, uh, it, it feels like real genuine work. For everyone else, it feels like largely a lot of like big busy work and make work. And so why wouldn't a kid go turn to video games? They want to feel like they're doing something real that matters with their peers, where they have a sense of control. That's what really well-designed games offer them. And so this is not an argument for unlimited video gaming forever and ever. No. Like even Jane McGonigal says the research says about three hours a day on average can be healthy for a kid. If you double that, it gets pretty toxic. And so I realize there's limits to this, but we should look at games as, as both, uh, it's a symptom of a larger problem here. You know, kids turn to games because they don't have other, uh, things to do that feel real and important with their time, but also games themselves do have value. And, and that's another reason why I believe kids often turn to them. Thank you for that. That's just so well
1: said. Um, to, 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 to echo or emphasize the point about, um, You know, Dan Pink and, 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 you know, self-determination through the work of Edward Deasy and Richard Ryan, who hold that to develop intrinsic motivation. People need three things. They need a sense of competency. So I'm not going to play your game, Blake, if I'm like the worst person who's ever played this and I, I never get come close to winning. I need that autonomy, right? But then I also need relatedness and this is why great teachers, great instructors, great mentors, you know, kids light up sometimes for the discipline, but more often for the teacher, right? And that 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 idea of how much connectedness how much relatedness modern video games can have is so powerful because you're right I mean I <laughs> I just turned 50 and when I think about the games that I played there was no, of course there's nothing like multiplayer you know online you know games because just the technology didn't exist um, and the, the other thing I'll say about you know um, you make a really good point in the book about having parents try not to manage their kids, but really try to play consultant to them, right? And and you try to have an influence on them and and and, ex- and expose them to things that maybe they m- otherwise might not. And and it's my experience has, has certainly always been that I'm a lot more likely to take some interest in something you share with me if you first take some interest. In the things that I'm already doing, right? So we were at a talk at a. uh, The parent raised his hand and was talking about his kid was, you know, wasting all his time playing video games. And I know I know almost nothing about video games, but I hazard against it. So what game does he play? And the dad said, I don't know, something stupid. And I thought, well, there you have it right where if if you my advice for parents is you know just like try playing it with your kid you'll one you'll find it humbling, but if your kid played baseball or did robotics or karate, you try to learn something about it um and 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 to, and more so to your point there's such uh, this one incredible variety of video games again almost almost all which I know so very little about, but when I have a kid and I start asking follow-up questions it's it's like it's like they're their own. Player in some of these games. Like they're their own action figure in a fully articulated movie, right? And in some ways that's so much more active than actually watching a movie because you're actually an autonomous agent within this own movie and you get to direct where you go. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I worry if I get into this, I'll be, I'll be more on the six hours a day uh, than three hours a day that uh, Dr. McGonagall suggests.
0: And you just brought up something that I feel very strongly about too, which is that let's not talk just about games, electronic games themselves, which, you know, some people are into and other people aren't, but let's talk about those game like principles in general. And for me, I have uh, loved taking, working with young people in the wilderness. I've, you know, just started a company where I take groups of teenagers who don't go to regular school on international, long international trips. And so I don't, play games myself and I don't like to like hang out when kids are playing games. I'm happy, content to let them do that on their own. But these things that I am into like uh, backpacking trips or international travel, these are very game-like in the same way that there are clear goals, clear roles, good feedback systems, and they're totally voluntary. In fact, when teenagers apply to go on the international trips that I've offered, um, the first thing I find out in the Skype interview is... Did your parents sign you up for this? Because if so, I don't want you here, right? I will not take you if you cannot demonstrate some basic interest and and awareness of what you're getting yourself into here because I want this to be voluntary. I want this to be a choice. And I think this is why it's been very helpful to uh, have students apply and not just sign up to my programs because then you can make sure that people actually want to be there. And that is what makes things like organized sports function fairly seamlessly or why kids love doing band or drama or robotics or mock trial, because these are all activities that you can opt into They're not mandatory. They have clear goals. Like you said, they're very social. They're very collaborative. Like, this is the stuff that naturally engages kids. And this is why I love summer camps, too. These are places where no one needs to be forced to get up in the morning at summer camp and go do stuff because kids just naturally want to do it. That's what learning and self directed learning should be. And that's, in my opinion, that should be the primary activity of young people. And then, kind of like we do nine months of school and then have three months of of summer and vacation like just flip that upside down okay let's have nine months of engaged what we currently call extracurricular type activities and then kids can do a couple months of like you know okay now you have to learn math in a foreign language something like that like filling in the gaps so that they're not completely uninformed uh, in the traditional academic sense i would love to see that
1: well, such a good point. and And that, it, it, you make me think of the research of Reed Larson, who talks about how do young people become motivated, develop you know their own inner motivation. And he said, it's not by dutifully doing their homework. It's not that 13 years of worksheets that you talk about in your book. It's through what he describes as the passionate pursuit of pastimes, right? And so all those things you're just talking about, what do kids want to dig into what do they sign up for? Um, but I'll, I'll make a, I'll weave in a point that you make in the book that, um, where school really, re- you know, organized schools, we think about the public, uh, public instruction rescued kids from a lifetime of degrading labor. And you make the point that now school is the source. Of that degrading labor of the 13 years of you know of worksheets, um, but you also go on to acknowledge that um, that school for many kids has become more of a sort of social safety net, right? It's one of the few places where, where for, for sadly for a lot of kids where they can where they have caring adults, right? Where they have can can count on a warm meal, um, and they and they're safe from the threats of of violence, and so. So let's look at that a little bit if we can because um you acknowledge that in many ways the opportunities to do unschooling or even homeschooling for for, for, for an awful long while have been kind of an opportunity of the middle class or, or, or the or the upper class and really haven't been an option for folks who are even kind of below the below the mean. Um and so for for folks who are listening to this then, well, so that all sounds great, Blake. I'd love to do that, but how 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 am I going to pull that off? How can we- help kids make the best or or families make the best of of situations even if their their options are a little bit um you know curtailed by by lack of resources?
0: yeah, thanks for bringing that up because sometimes when I get on my pedestal talking about you know why schools aren't engaging to kids, you know a lot of people say and very rightfully so, well, doing all this cool extracurricular stuff or summer camps or travel or unschooling, that's just not feasible for a lot of families. And I'm like, yes, 100%. I get it. And so in the book, first of all, I say, this is not a book about reforming the public school system. That's really important, but that's not something that parents can really afford to wait for if their kids are are having a really bad time right now. Um, and second of all, I say, well, let's go back to those extracurriculars that we were just talking about, uh, the drama, the band, the sports, uh, the elective courses. This is something that you can do as a parent if there's, it's just not feasible for your kids to to leave a conventional public or private school. You can help your kids get the most out of those types of activities while minimizing the the challenge and the stresses of schoolwork and so typically um, parents and kids are on opposite teams when it comes to schoolwork and the parent feels like they need to be the the enforcer of the homework um the the you know the standard keeper of the high grades and then often these extracurricular activities are kind of held up as these carrots to say, if you do well in school, then, you know, we will continue to support you doing all this other stuff. We can just flip that upside down and say, okay, get on your kid's team and make sure that they are highly engaged in a couple, you know, we could call them hobbies, we could call them self-directed pursuits, and, and make sure that that is a really big part of their life to the extent that it's possible within a normal school framework. And then, also get on your kid's team when it comes to the challenges and frustrations of school. And so this means, and this is a very scary thing, this means discarding the idea that grades are meaningful indicators of uh, whether your kid's going to be a successful adult or at least minimizing the role of grades, no longer saying uh, you can only get A's and B's. I mean, just imagine what kind of stresses could be relieved if your kid genuinely believed that it's okay to get a C. Right. And maybe, maybe, yeah, that C is going to be a liability when they want to go to college. But there are other ways, as I document in the book, many other ways of proving that you still can do college level work, including kids going to community college. uh, And anyways, (laughs) that's all chapter two. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, and that's such a good point. That, uh, Sonia Lupin, who's a stress researcher, makes the point that one of the single greatest ways to lower our stress is to have a plan B, right? That you know that, you know, if you, if you, if this, if this, if you really are struggling in middle school or really struggling in high school, to know that all those ways that you are talking about in the book of other paths that it can allow you to design and develop a really successful life and career. And that's not not just in this book, but in your other books as well. That pressure that it takes to off us as parents, and to and your point, puts it back on the same team of how do we help kids identify and develop things that matter to them that are likely to be the things that help them develop their lives, right? I mean, what, what a happier place to be as a dad or a mom,
0: Right. Yeah. And one of the simplest ways to do that is to also get off of the conventional school timeline, you know, to assume that these milestones of, of age 18, for example, are, are somehow fundamental to human society. I mean, they're just fabricated. They're, they're arbitrary. And so a number of the stories that I share in the book about young people who take these non-traditional paths, you know, now they're in their twenties or thirties. They're like highly successful by all conventional means. Uh but this was the same kid who, at age 18, had been totally unschooled, had taken a couple art classes, hadn't, hadn't touched math, and, you know, luckily the parents were extremely patient and, and said, you're, you're going to find your way. And, uh, you know, a normal parent, especially in, in the, the, the bastions of intensive parenting in this world, have a really hard time looking at an 18-year-old who seems unaccomplished and saying, you're okay. <laughs> But like, that's what it takes. I mean, that's where the love comes in, in, in my opinion. And I, I'd like to say one other thing, Ned, about the, the flexibility and the options. I intended to write this book for a fairly wide audience, including not just a North American audience. I'm having it translated into Spanish, Portuguese, and German right now. And uh, what I've learned by having an international perspective on this is that the United States is actually really, really great when it comes to having flexible options for moving into adulthood. And my favorite institution in that regard is community college something that most other countries don't have the equivalent of, And it's something that so many homeschoolers, unschoolers, alternatively schooled students uh, do rely upon to transition into college uh, in an inexpensive and flexible way. And in other countries, like you can do non-traditional stuff in your K through 12 years, but then in those final few years, you really do have to go back and go back into conventional school. For example, in the UK, you have to, you know, do your GCSEs, uh, your A-levels. If you want to get into college, there's just no other way to go about it. And so we, the fact that we have the GED, we have these you know, often state standardized tests that are the equivalent of high school diploma, this is all really wonderful stuff. And this is part of the equation. And I think it's a big part of why all these interesting alternatives have flourished in the United States and they have not flourished relatively speaking in other countries. So we're pretty lucky on the, the global scale of things.
1: And that's it's a really good point I mean you know it's hard for us to know um, unless we research way you have to know um what other systems are and, and how you know how, how fortunate we are that, that the United States is, is really Frankly, quite flexible for people who, you know, you get second chance and third chance and fourth chance. That there's so many entry points, and yeah, you could go straight, you know, K through 12 and go to college and then graduate school and blah blah blah. But you can also bop around and come come into the system when it's when it's appropriate for you. I mean, one thing for for folks who are listening, you talk in the book about um, when folks for whom um unschooling might not be appropriate, like if you got ADHD or, you know, you need a lot of learning supports where that might be expensive for you to take on. Um and those that though for parents who have kids who are neurodiverse, stepping outside of uh, the mainstream can feel even more, um, fraught, though again, has, have opportunities for parents who don't know the, the, the slow maturation of the prefrontal cortex may be the single biggest cause for hope along with these various entry points, right, into higher education in America that is a kid you have at age 15. May be remarkably different than where he's going to be at age 25. And so I think so much of the fear that parents have is that if things are going poorly now, they'll go, they'll be going poorly in the future. And all those kids, you know, that you talk about, you know, Gavin, Vanessa, and Tom, and, you know, where, where things were really hard for them and really a mess. And in their own way and in their own time, they figured it out. And I think that it's such, um, for for parents who are listening who have kids where, where things aren't going according to plan, at least to your plan, it's so helpful to hear and know that um, it's okay, it's safe to trust your kid. The,
0: the myth of the conveyor belt is is a strong and provocative one. Uh, This idea that there is this one guaranteed secure path that you can put your kid on. And with just enough, you know, browbeating, you can keep them on that path. And then there is some sort of guaranteed future uh, of security for your progeny. Like that's, that's a myth we all want to believe in. And it just, (laughs) It feels safe. It's comforting. It's a nice bedtime story, right? It's like Santa Claus. (laughs) Santa Claus is coming. But uh, I guess uh, if you have enough challenging experiences with your kid and you see that, that trying to keep them on this mythical path is the likely cause of these challenging experiences, deterioration of relationship, deterioration of a kid's mental health, um, then it's time to to walk away from that myth. And that means, yeah, walking away from what probably most of your your age cohort of parents is doing. and And so it's a terrifying thing. We talk about alternative education being scary for kids. It, it's terrifying for adults, too, yeah. because you feel like you are... <laughs> renouncing your sacred duty to like ensure a secure future for your children, when in fact, that is exactly what you need to do to secure that future for your kid. And, and one thing I like to emphasize in the book is that we should not hold homeschoolers or other alternatively educated kids to this, this <laughs> mythical standard uh, of they need to be superstars and higher performers, uh, because there are lots of kids who go through the conventional school system and they, they graduate with a accredited high school diploma and they have no idea what they're doing. And they have essentially no marketable skills, right? We call these kids failures to launch and that just happens. That happens sometimes. And these kids just often need a bit more support and a bit more time in order to get on their feet and figure out what they're doing. That can happen also with homeschooling and unschooling in alternative schools. And so it's not a magic bullet to like take your kid down an alternative educational path. Let's let's hold kids to an appropriate standard here. And uh, at the end of the day, the important thing is that you step off of this this mythical conveyor belt and say, "Who is the actual child that's in front of me? Who's the actual young adult? And like, what can I do for them right now? What do they tell me that they need?" That's it. That's that's the secret right there.
1: I love that. I love that. And 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 I'll and I'll and I'll echo um, some of the statistics you talk about in your book that that in 1910. Ten percent of kids got you know high school education, and by the '60s, I think it was what ninety percent, right? We're we're in high school, right? And the graduate, but but more interestingly, we went from ten percent to ninety percent. But the college graduation rate went from five percent to thirty percent. So you'd think we'd be doing better than thirty percent, and even today, roughly a third of the American population has you know has a college degree and so your your conveyor belt metaphor, I think, is so apt that we, as parents fall into the 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 myth, believing that if we can just deliver our kids to college, that everything will be fine but of course, we see so many kids. Yeah. Who, who peace out on college, you know, to an enormous frustration of the parents and a huge loss of money and and their great disappointment. And sometimes, you know, they, it wasn't the right time for them for college, but sometimes they, they didn't yet develop the independent skills, right? They've done it with 2000 hours of tutoring, like, like me, right? And they haven't been able to do it on their own, but also that they may, to your point, they, they get there and not only do they have no idea what they're doing, They have no idea why they're doing it. And you have this great line in your book, you say, you know, when your kid finds a very, your job is to help your kid find a very personal reason to go to college. That's the key that unlocks everything. So tell us more about that, because that that to me was like, oh, that's it. That's it. Help me <laughs> kid find the reason, right?
0: Yeah. And, and I think as an addendum to that line, you know, if you discover alongside with your kid that they don't have a highly personal, relevant reason to go to college, you know, support them in taking other paths, support them in taking a gap year, getting a job, an internship, or yes, maybe just hanging out at home for a bit longer till they figure out, you know, they're... they're compass needle starts, stops wavering so much. So a lot of parents are concerned that if their kid departs the traditional path, then they will hit age 18 and they'll have these big gaps in their education. They won't be ready to go to college. And I've honestly seen this. This is true. This actually happens. I'd say the most common gap is math. You know, a lot of kids who feel allergic to school, they step away from school. They will, they will not touch math. They're like, Nope, no one's forcing me to do it. I'm not touching it. And that is an anxiety provoking thing for a parent, especially an academically uh, highly credentialed parent to to witness and to worry about. Um, But this is what happens. Once that kid has that highly personal, highly relevant reason to go to college, I've seen this over and over again, they have the right motivation to jump through all the hoops and to fill in those gaps. And you know what? If you want to brush. And if you want to learn algebra, you can go into Khan Academy and you can do that. And I, I know we all talk about this. We talk about MOOCs and online learning and say anyone can learn anything. But then what we all know to be true is that you will only learn it if you have the motivation to learn it. And most people just don't want to go do that. Okay. But if you're a kid who's 18 and you're like, okay, well, I've enjoyed some nice freedom now. Uh, but I guess if I want to do this archaeology thing, I guess I do have to go to college. Then you have this reason, which is not just cultural... You know, pressure and your parents' you know, e- eternal warnings to you that if you don't go to college, you'll be a failure. You have a real intrinsic motivation to go do that Khan Academy math. And so, yeah, maybe it takes you a year or two to fill in those gaps and then to jump through the appropriate hoops, take the standardized test. So maybe you're going to college at age 20, but you are going with a really clear reason and you have invested the energy to make that happen. You haven't just been been doing what everyone else has been telling you to do. that is such a better situation to have a a student who is slightly later than normal in going to college than to have that 18-year-old who is just doing what everyone is telling her to do and takes on tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt, which can't be discharged except in death (laughs) to go to college and then drop out after a semester or a year or two, which is such a common thing that nobody likes to talk about. Like, which is the worst situation, Ned? Having a 20-year-old who only now has gotten their act together and is applying to go to college, but is doing it for the correct reasons, or a 20-year-old who has left college, has $15,000 of debt to her name, and doesn't have any idea, idea what she's doing. And on top of that, feels like a failure because she has not walked through, you know, passed through the hallowed doors of college graduation, you know, this, this mythical rite of passage that, that I, I'm using the word mythical a lot here, Ned. It? <laughs> yeah.
1: It's <laughs> so well said. It's so well said. And, and, and I, I, I think that so much of the fear that kids have, and more so the parents have, is that someone's going to get ahead of them. Right. If I take time to figure out and I sit here and look at my map and go, what's going on with this compass thing? I don't even think I know how to use this, right? That someone else is going to get further on down the the path, down the trail ahead of me. And they're going to gobble up all the good things that are there. And there won't be anything left for my kid when it gets there. And of course, it's just not true (laughs) in part because Anything is easier with a more mature brain. I mean, what you just shared is, is about as compelling a reason for kids to do a gap year, you know, to figure out what you want to do and why, and then go to college with a clear sense of why. I had a student who, um, Blake, she, uh, she just transferred from, from her, the college that she got into, which was not her first choice, into the college that she really wanted to be in, in a different program. She's super jazzed. And she just couldn't have been more miserable all the way through high school. And I remember asking her senior year, I said, what do you like to do most? And she said, I have no idea. And I waited. And she said, I spend all of my energy trying to meet other people's expectations of me. I have no idea what I like to do. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're 18 years old. You're an adult. You're going off to these four years to develop yourself and launch yourself in the world. But you have no direction. You have no idea what direction you want to go.
0: Isn't that sad? But also, she might have been set up to receive the appropriate credentials, to walk through the appropriate doors, to get a secure job. Maybe she won't like that job, but she will be able to to have a nice house. She'll be able to support her family, support her parents. And so, you know. I wanted to actually push back a little bit on something you just said in the last minute, Ned, uh, which is that, that there is this this real threat of, of credential inflation. Um, and the fact, so you say, we're afraid of our kids falling behind other kids. Well, when so many kids are getting bachelor's kids and so many 22-year-olds have bachelor's degrees, and that leads employers to start screening out applicants without bachelor's degrees, even for jobs that have no clear connection to a bachelor's degree, then yeah, there is some threat there. I don't think we can fully discount that. It's a great point. Yeah. But I think what makes up for that is um, these young people who if they go to college for the right reasons or if they choose not to go to college and they instead do work, they do internships, they, they build up, you know, artistic portfolios, you know, those young people have the chance to, to stand out entirely from the crowd. This is something I wrote about in my second book, better than college with, you know, addressing this all important question of, well, okay, if you don't get a bachelor's degree, how do you get a job? How do you get past the HR department? And I said, the struggle is real, but also you don't have to go through the HR department every time. Like just getting your work, your good work noticed by someone who works in a company and then getting this internal referral that is how so much hiring is done. And that is something that no one tells young people today. It's just like, we're telling them there's only one path. And, and that can lead to this, this fearful sense of like, well, I can't fall behind everyone else because this is just a race. This is a foot race. And there are a million other kids my age who are trying to you know, race to the finish line here. And the finish line is, is only going to be there for those who are highly credentialed. And so, um, and so I think for parents who feel Uh, like their kid would thrive in a more alternative educational path, K through 12, that to feel comfortable letting them take that path does require a bit of of research into just like non-traditional ways to get hired non-traditional you know, can my kids start their own business if they want to can they freelance essentially you need to get out of the, the one model in your head of employment which is most likely the model that in which you are employed and especially for parents who are in these highly licensed fields like law or medicine or school teachers themselves it's very easy to think well there's there's nothing you can do without a college degree but Really, there are so many jobs out there which don't have formal licensing requirements that require college degrees. Yes, you still have to deal with HR departments sometimes, but if you can figure out those creative mechanisms for working around HR or creating an alternative signal to just a mere college degree, then there are ways to overcome the hurdle. It's not always easy, but it's doable.
1: Such a good point. And, and, and I love that you sort of you push back on my point about credentialing that, that there are, of course, real advantages. To a college degree, and specifically a selective a degree from a highly selective college, because it is a signaling system. You know, having a college degree from a great co- from a highly selective college or university, is, is, is incredibly helpful in getting that first job. It's the second or third job that's kind of on you, right? Um, but I, but I, I really appreciate, um, you know, what you share from better, better than, than college of how the, the idea that there's this path, but there are other paths, right? We kind of go back to that plan B thing. Um, because if the path that you're on feels awfully crowded and you don't think you can possibly win, um, it's easier to keep running hard on that race. Maybe you'll catch up if you don't have the sense that you're going to fall to the abyss because that really becomes crazy. You we know, probably have enough kids right now who are feeling crazy about the whole process. Um, so I want to I want to wrap up and then I want to kind of follow, you know, kind of final question for you. But I, I love this um, from, from Anna Martin, who's an unschooling mother, um, so who sort of gets us this idea of multiple approaches. Said, my job is to approach my kids with humility and know that my ability to discern what they are to be or to do or to excel in is nothing compared to theirs. My job is to assist them in their discernment, to make experiences, work, play, resources, teachers, mentors, and collaborators available to help them construct themselves, to talk things through with them, but not talk to death. I direct nothing, less of me, more of them. That's pretty
0: well said. I've shared that quote a number of times when I've given talks to parents and, and I use it to illustrate the idea of, of consensual education and and how it doesn't really matter what your kid does. They could go to Montessori or they could go to military school as long as they're actively consenting to it. Like That's the point. It's not about structure versus not structure. It's not about school versus unschool. It's like help your kid actively consent to stuff and then they will become adults who actively investigate and then consent to the the work that they choose. And then they'll probably be much happier uh, employees. And then they'll probably be better compensated employees. Like that's exactly what we want for kids, right? To be happy and to also be secure. So this is why I feel like you have to start now. You can't just say like, all right, kid, finish high school. And then you can go off and start making your own decisions. Like, no, you need to start making your own decisions now. And that means figuring out how to con- consent to something. And the opposite of consent is coercion. And and that is the bedrock of so much of modern schooling and parenting.
1: I know I noticed that and I forget it was your, the book or your website that you decided early on that you would be involved in no work that involved coercion.
0: Yeah, and, and you know part of this is very self-interested Ned, because it's it's easier to work with kids who want to be where they are, right? Uh, this is the difference between a, a regular summer camp or an outdoor education program where kids get to opt in and like a wilderness therapy program, maybe where kids are, you know, snatched from their beds in the middle of the night and they end up in the middle of, of Utah and, uh, and, and those are really, really difficult jobs. I have friends who have worked wilderness therapy jobs. And so part of this is very self-interested, but also a part of it is, is a little bit of a protest saying like, I am not going to lend my labor to a conventional school, whether public or private, where kids are, are compelled to attend, because I just, I don't believe that's how life should operate.
1: So one, again, one of the things about your book is, is the, the, the voice that comes through, how respectful you are about mm-hmm. kids. It just I mean, just it just comes through. And, and I mean, all of us as parents, and I've got a kid who just graduated high school and a daughter who's a sophomore. And I really, I try really hard to do that, but I don't nail it every time because I get stressed and I want to be you know and I want to, I want to do it my way right because it makes me feel better but it oftentimes makes them feel worse but to keep moving in that direction of treating kids you know like the, the developing adults that they are and you know to treat our kids at least as respectfully as we treat other people seems like a solid place to be so let me finish up with this if you have one piece of advice for parents one for students, and one for educators. I know I should have, <laughs> and I know you've written books books on all these things. So on a, on, a, on, a, on a hot summer day here, what comes to mind for you if you're, what's been top of mind, even just during this time of COVID?
0: I'll do my best, Ned. Um... <laughs> One piece of advice for educators is if you love working with kids and you're really frustrated by the school system, there are many other ways to make a living working with kids and kids who want to work with you. Uh, A great resource for that is a book um, called The Teacher Liberation Handbook by Joel Hammond, who's a friend of mine. Uh, Advice for parents. Well, we've been talking about advice for parents in in this whole episode here. You know what? I'd like to give a shout out to this consultant yeah, yeah, versus yeah, yeah, yeah. manager analogy, which I, I totally heisted from your book because it, it's so good. And I've used it so many times. I feel like I owe you royalties somehow, <laughs> but you know, the idea is think of yourself as a business consultant. You, so as a good business consultant still has more expertise than her clients uh, will offer unsolicited, excuse me, solicited advice. And, but a consultant doesn't you know, fall apart if, if the business you know, falls apart. there's a fundamental distance there while you can still be very caring, loving and supportive, but that business is not your business in the same way that that kid is a separate person. Okay. Intensive parenting says it's not a separate person. It is a vehicle through which to achieve all of your unfulfilled dreams and and hopes and and desires. No, no, don't do that. That's bad. Uh, And advice for students, geez, well, I'm going to make this kind of more contemporaneous advice. If, if, it's fall 2020 and you really don't feel excited about going back to do more virtual school, AKA remote schooling uh, or doing some hybrid version of that, like consider taking a semester or a year off to just try self-directed homeschooling. Uh, It's really not a big gamble with your life. You can always go back to school, especially for people who are in Uh, seventh, eighth grade, uh, you can take a year off and you will be like tracked back into the normal high school system in ninth grade. No problemo. Uh, It can be a little bit more uh, dicey if you're like a 10th grader and you take that year off and then you want to get back into 11th grade. And so I'm not saying that it's a a risk-free path, but really, if you're not interested in what school is offering you, you can try for a while to do something radically different. And, you know, it might be the best thing you ever do.
1: Uh, I love that. I love that idea. you can, you can go off. You can choose your own path. And if you decide to like the path that you were on before, you can come back. Ah, oh, Blake, I'm so happy to spend some time chatting with you. Um, folks, um, the books, why are you still sending your kids to school? And if you're considering alternatives to what your kids are doing now, or if you just want to understand kind of how kids think, kind of what school really feels like to kids right now, it's a great, great insight on that and will help your kids get the most out of their education. And to echo your point, Blake, to help you have a better relationship with your kids, because goodness, isn't that the reason we have kids? so it's a wonderful book um I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading it i keep working hard you're doing great stuff out there blake thanks for being with us
0: thank you very much Ned. it's great
1: thank you for listening to prep talks please subscribe to us for free at apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts see you next time